Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. (laughs) Yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. Hey guys, LD here with a small parental warning. This episode contains extremely adult themes, so listeners under 13, maybe sit this one out. You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ2. <laughs> Welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD. Along with me for the ride this week is Will the Thrill. Good. Is it morning, afternoon, evening? Whatever. All of them. Yes. Good that to you. And this week's storyteller, Mr. TJ2, the deuce. Did you take up the symbols? <laughs> what was that? Not the triangle? Are what you have you been practicing? <laughs> Are you drinking out of a stein? I uh, no, I'm drinking out of my uh, Yeti lowball cooler. Oh, oh there okay. we go. There, there it is. And uh, I had quite of a, I've had quite a fortnight, fellas. So uh, <laughs> not, I'm not even playing with beer today. I'm going straight for the brown liquor. Ah, I got it. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, so I, I know you can't divulge a whole heck of a lot of what you were doing before, but can you? Can you give the folks a rundown of how your last two weeks have been? Okay. Well, um, the, I'm, I'm sure listeners by now know that my regular pay the bills job, not that we aren't lucratively remunerated for our work here. Um, I mean, it's because, you know, we stole all of Universal's music and that's how we're right. Because, right because yeah, we're, clearly. Okay, because we're, we're just raking in the bucks off that. <laughs> but anyway, so I'm uh, right for a newspaper. I'm the editor. And I had to cover for the past two weeks a federal trial of uh, an indicted former sheriff and two deputies that entailed driving to our lovely state capital of Columbia 
every day for the last two weeks. The courthouse is exactly 85 miles from my house. Good so Lord. 170 miles round trip every day. Had to be in there at nine and you stay until they're done. And that might be five and it might be six. And then sometimes I still had to go back to my office and write afterward. I had to use most of my lunch breaks to write the up stories of the first half of the day to the exclusion of eating. <laughs> and uh, LD had quite a had quite a little time she told you about in one of our Bowie episodes working on a production that in, uh, that involved her walking 60 miles in a week. Yeah, I didn't, qu- I didn't quite have to do that, but I did work for about 130 hours the last two weeks, which is not a thing people should do. I don't mention what I did the last two weeks to elicit any sympathy or make anybody to put on a big show about, look how hard I worked plying my craft. It's I just want people to know if I sound tired or out of it, or if it sounds like my brains are turning into mashed potatoes over the course of this episode. I want you to know why that is. Mm, mashed potatoes are good. Mm, mashed pot- mm, tasty brain potatoes. Well, then other than my brother's brain potatoes, we do have sad news. Uh, we yeah. had three, over, yeah. three people passed yeah. away since we recorded our Bowie episode. Yep. We had somebody who was a personal impact on my life because I don't ever talk about it as much as I should, but Meatloaf is one of my favorite people on the planet. And and this is a there's a there's a line that that clearly delineates my loves because Meatloaf, as we all know, was in the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and yep. from the Rocky Horror Picture Show, I actually found Bad Out of Hell. I was gonna say Black Dog with Patrick Swayze, but you know, no, oh. but uh, but uh, PS one fifty seven or PS fifty seven is another really good movie, but like. Okay, but it's not about it's not about Meatloaf. It's about Meatloaf's music. Jim Steinman passed yes. away. Yeah, and for those who don't know, Steinman wrote almost all of Meatloaf's big hits. He also wrote Total Eclipse of the Heart, and I believe he wrote It's All Coming Back to Me. Uh, which would again, for some reason that would uh, thematically make sense. But let yes, me, it would. Let, let me double check that. Okay, that but that's his his songs were they were they were big. They're dramatic. They're thematic. They're 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 gothic, archaic, and gorgeous. Yes, it's not. He was he did not. I'll tell you one of the things that was cool about him. He managed to have a lot of success as a songwriter despite eschewing any idea of what a typical pop song should sound like. Yeah. Okay. So I just looked up. Here are some of the acts that he is associated with: Meatloaf, Bonnie Tyler, Pandora's Box, The Sisters of Mercy, Celine Dion. So you were right about that. Air Supply, Barry Manilow, Cher, Barbara Streisand, Todd Rundgren, Roy Dodd, Billy Squire. Like it's that's uh, that that's some of the biggest acts that we ever grew up with. Sure. But, and he wrote, and, and of course he wrote Bad Out of Hell, and I think Paradise by the Dashboard Light. And but also if you look at if you look at the videos for I Would Do Anything for Love, but I won't do that. And Celine Dion's, it's all coming back to me now. It's very similar, like the motorcycles, the leaves, the gothic castle that they're shooting in the running down the hallways and it's it's all very similar but yeah that that's a really tragic loss because he he did like you said eschew what the idea of a contemporary pop song would be considered but somehow managed to transcend that and find so much success and and managed to be relevant over such a long period of time despite the fact that a lot of people may not be really that familiar with him 
Mm. Yeah. But you look at the art, the artists he's associated with them. And that's, he had at least a 20 plus 20, 30 plus year run of, of really big hits for a wide array of artists. Yeah. And you know, those songs without question. Yeah. And then, uh, and then we had Uh, two losses in the hip hop world. We had black Rob passed away. He was only 51 years old. Jeez. 51. And he died from a prolonged battle with kidney failure. Oh, jeez. Which is just awful. Uh, He was of course with bad boy records. One of P Diddy's uh, label mates. And uh, yeah, we lost him at the age of 51. And then the one most recent, which actually hit me hard. And I think TJ hit you hard as well was uh, G-Shock, Gregory Jacobs. Yep. Yeah. Humpy Hump has gone to that Burger King bathroom in the sky. Yep. All right, stop what you're doing. and yeah. Unbelievable. 57, only 57. So you have Black Rob at 51, you know, Jacobs at 57. Just, and I don't know about you, but I remember when that album Sex Packets hit in the early oh, 90s, God. that was unbelievable. That oh. was, it was huge. It yeah, was uh, it was. And you know, the thing is, Every everybody knows the Humpty Dance. Of course, I think all three of us could probably trade the lyrics off right now. We could oh. sing the whole song. It was one of we're my parlor spare, tricks. We're yeah. going. We're going to scare. We're going to spare people that unique experience. <laughs> yes, but, you, but we could. I, yeah. But I was going to say it, it's. They were a lot more than one song. Um, oh, absolutely. I love same song that was on the Nothing But Trouble soundtrack. The way we swing, oh, such good. It's it, it's the it's the only redeeming thing that that movie provided humanity. And they they appeared in the film, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, regrettably, yes. But um, the song is really good. Oh, the and whole then film um, is regrettable. The answer, don't say one person is they they regrettably appear. No, that whole movie is awful. It's trash. That is, that is, I'm, I, I, I maintain, and y'all have seen a lot more movies than I have, I know, I maintain that is the worst movie ever made, and that I, certainly the worst one I've ever seen. Yeah, the, the point we're trying to make is on a completely just, again, turd of a film, the one bite spot was the appearance of the Digital Underground. Right, of else. Digital Underground, yeah. and, and there's yeah. songs saying, uh, and kiss you and i'll kiss you back and they just they had a ton of great songs uh so yeah that that's tough so stop what you're doing and pay some respect to uh another wonderful lost artist yeah peace and humptiness forever g-shock so who are we talking about today so uh we are continuing with our heavy hitter series uh we we began with uh eddie van halen and then adam yauk and we just finished up 158 consecutive weeks on david bowie or whatever it was we did (laughs) the the retrospective yeah it was 226 Uh weeks don't yeah, I think I just got my I think I just got my driver's permit when we started that one. Um, <laughs> but, um, uh, no, we did I, I, five weeks on David Bowie, extended a little bit by a couple of break weeks because of uh, LD's he ridiculous his, work. He released his 20th album when we started that. Right. <laughs> so we are moving on now to the next in the series, and I'll be taking lead on this one, probably a three-part episode. And this is on a person who is famous and infamous, which means very famous for anyone who has seen um, The Three Amigos, um, <laughs> on a lot of fronts. And there are a lot of people who might not be familiar with much of his work. There's one song you've most certainly heard. But I think that you're going to see as we start to lay this out, there's a lot more than one song and one famous comedy sketch uh, in the life, times, and career of Rick James, bitch. Rick James. So... Oh, wait, is he the original RGB? RJB? 
RJ. RJB. He's uh, RJB. Oh, gosh, you were close. Oh, God, you went for something and you failed, but I'm glad. <laughs> you totally worth it. Totally worth That's it. Good. I tried. I tried. Dang it. So, as I was just alluding to, even if you don't know anything about the life, legacy, or death of the subject of the series we're about to start, I promise you, you know his name, and I'm going to demonstrate it. <laughs> LD, go yeah. ahead and do it. Rick James. That That's not quite, you're not quite done. Well, b- bitch. Thank you. Uh, Will, you want to do it? <laughs> Rick James, bitch. See, it's, it's okay. So here's the snake eating the, the snake tail. I, I have a hard time dealing with Rick James because when it came down to the ESPN oh, yes. uh, Sweet 16 of Best Dave Chappelle episodes, <laughs> I got beat by Rick James. You're going to lose out. Yes. Okay. So let's go ahead and get this out in the open just from from the jump. We've managed to find now some of them have been thread thin connections to every artist that we've done thus far. Um, We did Eddie Van Halen. LD's first screen credit was for Murder in New Hampshire about Pam Smart. Pam Smart apparently did a strip tease to the Van Halen song uh, In and Out before they had sex for the first time. So, that's, so it's a very, so it's a very, it is a, <laughs> um, so that's a very thin connection, but it is one. Uh, the second one, we had a direct connection when uh, Will took lead on the Adam Meow episode in that the Beastie Boys followed LD on Twitter. It's quite which, hilarious. Well, hilariously, for, for no reason that we can figure. And they still follow me, They're and I there. don't know why. <laughs> and they still follow her for reasons that, that only the Beastie Boys know. Um, okay, so the last episode, uh, I don't. We had something, and I don't remember what it was with Bowie. Oh, I was in the same city at the same time, or something like that. It wasn't much of one. Yeah, we've got a pretty direct one here. For those who don't know, LD was in one of the most <laughs> infamous and hilarious comedy skits to ever air on American television, (laughs) that being the Dave Chappelle bit featuring a white family whose last name was an ethnic slur, okay? You've probably seen it. If you ever watch Chappelle, you know which one I'm talking about. LD was one of your your most famous screen credits, I would imagine, the one that people probably recognize you the most from, was from being on Dave Chappelle. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. Okay, Dave Chappelle also, another of his most famous bits, was the true Hollywood story with he and Charlie Murphy acting out uh, (laughs) portions of Charlie's interaction with Rick James. This is amazing. Yep. Yeah. The old, the old web, and now what LD was referring to there, the old website Grantland at one time did a 64 team bracket NCAA style tournament to determine the best Dave Chappelle show bit ever. And LD's made it to the final four <laughs> and, and lost to the Rick James True Hollywood story, which then actually did lose to the blind black KKK man. Black white supremacist, yeah, the mm-hmm. black white supremacist, yep. Yeah, the, yes, the blind black white supremacist. But you made it to the final four, which is something to be really proud of. I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud of that. Also, that you you know that that skit was done 18 years ago. That's so scary. Mm-hmm. So if you really want to feel old, I was in my 20s. <laughs> <laughs> As was I. It was a more innocent time. I think I was 22 or 23 when we shot that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and maybe, you know, we, we've, we've toyed around with the idea of doing some little 
shorties we're, we're going to call them or something where we do just little short episodes that aren't really about a celebrity death we just tell dumb stories and give dumb lists and make have fake dumb arguments and just stuff like that but you know, you we at some point should mention your whole hit because you were actually going to be brought back when Dave uh, decided he wished to no longer be on television, right? Yes. That was yeah. Yes, it was. Well, he he Dave is the kind of person that uh, if he likes you, he will bring you back for other skits. And so the the second season finished, and you know, like the the reception for the skit that I was in was so good that they were actually going to kind of make it a thing, right? But the you know, he, he disappeared for what, three or four months and then uh, walked away from the right. Central. So there was no controversy with the network. Yeah. 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 And all that stuff. And they ended up airing some unfinished episodes. He didn't want yeah. to be yeah. put on and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. anyway, so, but yes, as we all just said, Rick James, bitch, you might not know his music, but you know, darkness and you know exactly what the five fingers said to the face <laughs> that cocaine is a hell of a drug why he wished he had more hands, and you know, Rick James, bitch, thanks to an all-time funny, bordering on immortal skit from Dave Chappelle on his eponymous TV comedy show. The springboard that could have given the career of the man it centered on, musician Rick James, could have been tremendous. I'm Rick James, bitch, became a universal catchphrase, one that actually ended up enraging and turning off the man who made it famous on television. <laughs> Unfortunately, James died just months after the sketch aired, meaning his long dormant career never got a jump start. Instead, to a lot of people, all it served to do was make Rick James a punchline. His own behavior and persona didn't help on that front, particularly as it related to his over-the-top drug use personality and libidinous bragging. He was infamous. He was accused and convicted of horrible crimes and openly admitted to committing disgusting, horrific acts, which we will touch on later in this series. Is this like R. Kelly level stuff? Oh, uh, it's worse. Yeah, it's. Oh bad. wow. It's okay. No, it's no, it's yeah, no, it's worse than no, no, no. Yeah, it's way worse than what R. Kelly did. Wow. Okay. Buckley. Crimes against cr crimes against nature and such as that. When you focus on the music, though, you'll figure out that while he might remain a punchline, Rick James is not a joke. So, James Ambrose Johnson Jr., better known by his stage name, Rick James, was born in Buffalo, New York on February 1st, 1948. He was one of eight children of mother Mabel and father James Ambrose Johnson Sr. His father, an auto worker, left the family when James was a young child. His mother was a, a very interesting person, to say the very least. <laughs> now, she was a devout Catholic, and a young James was actually an altar boy at St. Bridget's Roman Catholic Church. However, to help pay the bills, his mother was a dancer for the famed dancer Catherine Dunham, but she also worked to earn extra money by serving as a numbers runner for the mob. Wow. Okay, wait, what, what is a numbers runner? I think, Will, and you can help me out here. Yeah. Did she go collect, I think? Would she have been collecting on the numbers game? It, it, usually, yeah, if there's some kind of betting or structure in place there, a numbers runner will either collect the payment or they could just be a general courier between the parties. So, And, 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 and the, the quote numbers game was almost like an illegal lottery. Am it, I right on that? Basically, yeah. I mean, it was, yeah, it was basically an underground lotto for the, right. for the sake of conversation, yeah. Got it. So she would often take her son along as she went on her collection route, which often had them in clubs and bars. That allowed him to see performers like John Coltrane, 
Miles Davis, and Etta James in New York. That fed a love of music that was already developing inside him. He had always been the kind of child that liked banging on pots and pans, but he also began singing in the church choir and playing in the band at school. Street corner performances soon followed. He learned to play the bongos and other percussion instruments, and James was well on his way to becoming an actual musician. James had a number of pursuits that were commonplace in young boys. He played basketball at the YMCA, and he played football. Oh, and he got laid when he was nine. Whoa, okay. uh, oh, oh, I'm sorry? What? Yeah. Uh, what did you do? What did you do today, honey? I petted a doggy and rode it my bike and got stanky on my wiener. That, that a direct what quote? in the statutory rape are you talking about? Yeah, how the? Uh, I mean, I have questions, but at the same time, I don't want them answered. He claims that he lost his virginity when he was nine years old to an older woman. She was fourteen. Older would be ten. <laughs> yes. Well, she was fourteen. Oh my! Wow. She was she was really robbing the cradle, like almost literally. Yeah. Wow. I bet that was a satisfying romp for all involved. Well, if you'll excuse me, I've now got to go burn all my clothes and take a shower and possibly light my skin on fire. I don't know. I mean, when, <laughs> when I was nine, that really wasn't something I was thinking about. Um, I, uh, I, I, developed, uh, an, I developed an interest in the opposite sex at a very young age, but I don't think it was nine. Yeah, exactly. I, I didn't think... Yeah, I was like, oh, you know, this girl is is pretty, but that's about where it stopped. Yeah. <laughs> Daisy Duke makes me feel funny when I see her. Yeah. I probably would have been thinking when I was nine. Yeah. Yeah. So he was nine and she was 14. Wow. Yeah. He said, he said, quote, my kinky nature was there early. Maybe mom saw it and thought by putting me in Catholic school, the nuns would cure me. <laughs> or, for a while, I walked straight and narrow and even became an altar boy. That didn't last long. The streets were calling, and so were the older girls. How did you even know what to do with it when you were nine? Yeah. Like, like what? I mean, I know it's kind of ingrained into people, and you figure it out on your own somehow, okay, okay. but hey, guys, when, guys, you're guys, guys, when you're nine? Guys, we're, 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 we're moving on from this. Yeah. Moving on to whatever's okay. next. It doesn't okay, matter. Ms. Kill, okay, Miss Killjoy. He began to smoke marijuana fa uh, fairly regularly when he was very young and dabbled, with, <laughs> and dabbled with heroin for the first time in his very early teens. It doesn't get any better. I thought... Okay. So by the time he's 13, he's had sex, smoked weed, and done heroin plane has crashed into the mountain what a sheltered life i lived yeah yeah you Good. you didn't do heroin until you were 22 <laughs> i was gonna say god i, I didn't I, I didn't start playing with smack till i had a driver's license <laughs> he did he did heroin when he was 13 years old Oh my Living God. outside the bounds of the law went beyond drug use, however, as he was arrested and jailed a number of times for petty theft and burglary. When he was either 14 or 15, hoping to avoid the draft, he lied about his age and joined the Navy Reserves. That strategy might, yeah, at, 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 he says 14 or 15. Now, that strategy might have worked, but as he started playing drums in New York jazz bands and pursuing all of the things that he enjoyed, namely women and drugs, he repeatedly missed his twice-monthly mandated naval service sessions above aboard the USS Enterprise. Now, the military takes a fairly dim view of folks simply not showing up for duty, so James soon found himself ordered to be enlisted and sent to Vietnam. Oh, wow. At 15. 
at, at about 15 years old. The letter ordering him to report showed up the day that he played on stage with one of his idols, Thelonious Monk. Oh, wow. Um, now, this was in the early 60s, so America's involvement in conflicts in Vietnam were still somewhat in their infancy. But James had already heard terrible stories about what was going on there and had, in fact, joined the reserves for the express purpose of not having to go there to start with. He claims to have had dreams of, quote, sinking ships and falling bombs and his throat being slit and his heart pierced by bayonets. Oh, that's vivid. I mean, so, was he already, he, but he, he hadn't shipped out yet, right? Like he hadn't, he had not shipped out yet, right? Uh, no, he, he had gone to a couple of these reserve sessions that he had to go through to, I think like two weekends a month, but then he stopped showing up because he was like playing in clubs on the weekends and he just didn't feel like going. Got it. And he's at the ripe old age of 15 or 16. And he's 15 whole years old and whatnot. So at at this point, with a letter telling him that he was uh, going to have to enlist and go to Vietnam, he went AWOL. And like many young men of the era looking to avoid military conscription, he fled to Canada, settling in Toronto. Hmm. I don't remember exactly where I read it, but someone brilliantly stated that at this point, James's life story began to mirror that of Forrest Gump a coked-out R&B version of Forrest Gump, with, with his path crossing that of an unholy array of celebrities and historical events. James claimed in his posthumous biography, Glow, that not long after getting to Toronto, quote, three white guys attacked him on the street. Now, he would quite famously much later brag about smacking people and leaving ring indentations in a friend's head, and we will get there later on. But he was a kid, and was outnumbered in this instance. He said, fortunately, that, quote, three other white guys intervened and saved him. The name of one of those three is probably lost to history, at least I couldn't find it, but the other two certainly are not, as there were a couple of struggling young musicians named Garth Hudson and Levon Helm. Levon Helm? They, They were in a band at that point, but they would end up being two members of the band, like up on Cripple Creek, oh, Atlantic wow. City, oh, the night they drove old Dixie down the way, the band. Oh, wow. Which is, um, did you just glaze over like one of their biggest hits? It's the weight, man. I, I said the weight. He did, yeah. Well, I heard you, but, but that was like tucked in between two other songs. That's it. They have a, ton, the, the, the band had a ton of great songs. Which is good, but they also have like the worst name. They, and well. Not the worst. The, We've discussed with the any, worst. With anybody else, it would seem like braggadocio to call yourself the band, but um, they kind of carried it. So, I mean, Robbie Robertson, Levon Helm, Garth Hudson—that was that was some stuff. And that was that was basically Dylan's band for a while. Wasn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah. Um, they then supposedly took James, who was rather shaken up, to a club where they would be performing that night as the backing band for Ronnie Hawkins. James apparently joined them on stage at some point that night. There was apparently a thriving music scene in Toronto at this point, and James made musical friends beyond just Helm and Hudson, although those were two pretty impressive ones to have. One of the first of those was Bruce Palmer, who would go on to play bass for Buffalo Springfield. Mm -hmm. And Nick St. Nicholas, who would later join a band called Sparrow that then became Steppenwolf. He became very good friends with a young folk musician as well named Joni Mitchell, who you may have heard of. Yeah, I think we have. Yeah. In, in an oddity for James, the relationship was apparently completely platonic. 
which is not a thing I think he had with many females, given what we already know two pages into this episode. And 14 quote, years and nine years into his life. Right, nine years into his life. Quote, it wasn't sexual, but musical as an MFR. She and I would sit up all night listening to Miles Davis's sketches of Spain, he said. Which, by the way, prior to this episode, I'm really curious to know how many of you had this image in your head of Rick James and Joni Mitchell hanging out. Anyone? Nope. Any takers? Nope. Listening, so. and, and listening to Miles Davis. Listening to Miles Davis, yeah. At someone's flat in Toronto. No. Not I sure didn't envision years. that when I started researching this. Yeah. James also eventually became friends with another fellow who would go on to a high level of acclaim, that being Neil Young. Yeah, he's, he's someone we've heard of. Yep. Quote, Neil was cool. He had a quirky sense of humor and a quick mind. His singing was a little strange, but his facility on the guitar was crazy, James said. Young at that point was living the life of a troubadour, just kind of moving from town to town to play music. He met Bruce Palmer, the two became friends, and Young was convinced to stick around the city for a while. By this time, James had joined a local band, which changed its name to The Sailor Boys in honor of their newest member. They eventually changed their name to the Minor Birds. Now, the Minor Birds were somewhat legendary because of the members who went on to great fame, but they were also star-crossed and never actually had a hit for reasons that we'll get into shortly. Nick St. Nicholas was actually a member of the band for uh, a short time. And there is one thing I want to uh, mention to deviate from the script a little bit here. Now, we are a member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. And I have told you on many occasions, I am somewhat limited in terms of uh, technology and doing anything on my phone or computer or any of that crap. So I figured out a way to you listen to the podcast. just got a Facebook page two weeks ago. <laughs> I, um, I, I figured out a way to listen to the podcast I'm on, and that was about it. But I have now listened to a couple of other Pantheon podcasts, and one of them turned out to be very relevant to this. We are in the same podcast family as the great Pamela DeBars, the, the world's most famous groupie. She had an episode where she actually interviewed Nick St. Nicholas. Nick St. Nicholas, as it turns out, was the first to trot upon her path, we'll say. Ah. Which they discussed in the, uh, which she discussed in the podcast. Interesting. But, but Nick St. Nicholas said that when he, the first time he, re- he met Rick James, um, the band he was in at the time was rehearsing and, and James kind of walked in or whatever and he was wearing his sailor suit that he'd gone AWOL in that apparently he was supposed to wear when he re- reported to go to Vietnam. So Nick asked him what songs he knew and Rick, Rick said, oh, oh I, oh, I know a lot of songs and then Kay came down and started, started kind of singing with him. He said, now you notice I did not say, do you sing? And he explained that and you, and you really have to think about A, the time that we're talking about and then think about Nick's lineage. I believe he's from Germany and then he moved, I think, to Canada. He said literally the only people of color he'd ever seen were all entertainers. Mm-hmm. But if you're from Germany and then you move to Canada, that makes sense. He said, he said literally like any black person I'd ever seen was, was an entertainer because I, the places I'd lived were, were very white. And I just, he said, yeah. I, he said so I, I just assumed that like every black person could sing. So I just said, hey, what, what songs do you know? Which I just thought was kind of interesting that you think about the, look at this through the prism of it's the 60s he's a dude from germany who his family immigrated to somewhere in canada and then i think he ended up uh, leaving there and going to toronto but that i just thought that was kind of interesting i also found it interesting that he was pam's uh first uh friend there you go in that way 
Uh, but anyway, I, I, I wholeheartedly want to encourage anybody to listen to listen to her podcast, all of them that Pantheon does. But that one in particular was I, I found really, really interesting, actually. So they changed their name to the Sailor Boys, and they eventually changed their name to the Minor Birds. And, and as I mentioned, uh, Nick St. Nicholas was a member of that for a short time, but he left and was replaced by Bruce Palmer. Now, the story of how the group got its name is an interesting one. A story from the website Afropunk details that there was a local club called the Minor Bird Club, which was a rock and roll slash strip joint run by professional golfer Colin Kerr. Kerr had a prize pet minor bird named Raja, which he claimed was the reincarnated spirit of a nine-year-old boy he had once met in India. Wow. On top of the other stuff I already said about Nick St. Nicholas, he said in this the podcast with Pamela DeBars that uh, this guy was obsessively, creepily weird and obsessive about this minor bird of his. And I think Nick actually said he had more than one, but this was his prized one, Raja. So he, what you said was named for the reincarnated spirit of a nine-year-old boy he had met in India. He actually had his club's house band record a song called the Minor Bird Song, which his brother had written. He had a goal of getting Raja a spot on the Ed Sullivan Show. So he played a tape on a 24-7 loop next to the bird's cage that just said over and over, hello, Ed Sullivan, hello, Ed Sullivan, hello, Ed Sullivan, hoping that this minor bird would learn to say, hello, Ed Sullivan, so that he could be on television. It's remarkably like your British accent, actually. Uh, yes. There, I, I was going to say, if you, if you ever, you may notice over time that all of my accents essentially are the <laughs> same. Kind of blend together. <laughs> they really don't, there's really no difference between Irish, English, a minor bird, minor a bird. parrot. Uh, um, but he, he was hoping that the bird would just learn that line so that he could be on television. I'm really sorry that I've got to uh, interrupt this. How dare you interrupt this? I know, I'm sorry. But we do have to take a short sponsor break, and we will be right back. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. And we're back. All right. And let's get back into the very wild and crazy life of Rick James, bitch. Ah, that's funny. Rick, Roger never got his big TV break. But when uh, the, the house band quit at the Minor Bird Club, Kerr hired the Sailor Boys, who changed their name to the Minor Birds. Kerr proved to be a benefactor for the Minor Birds, paying, paying hundreds of young girls to mob the band as they stepped out of a limo and lining up shows for them outside of his own club. The band, per a story in Far Out magazine, also caught the attention of John Craig Eaton of the Eaton's department store dynasty. He financed them, giving them a fairly large account to work from to buy equipment and take care of their, their other band needs. The band started to gain attention and actually signed to the Canadian division of Columbia Records that released the single Minor Bird Hop. The group yeah. then ventured to Detroit to so, audition for Motown. So let, let the, back, back it up for just a second. Okay. They're leaning heavily into this uh, Minor Bird thing, huh? Mm-hmm. Okay. It's my life in Mad Libs. <laughs> yes, that which we seem to which 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 seems to be a thing that we do almost every week now. You're just like yeah. 
They they did what? Uh, who? I think Rick James's life is more like my life in Cards Against Humanity at this point. <laughs> like, yeah. Um. So the group, after uh, having uh, that single put out, the Minor Bird Hop, ventured to Detroit to audition for Motown. This was around 1966. The audition went well, and the band was signed. However, once they started to record, the band's guitarist became unhappy with the attention being paid to James, and he abruptly quit. So suddenly, the Minor Birds were without a guitar player, but luckily, Wait, Palmer. Was there- was there a guitar player Morrissey? <laughs> I don't think it was uh, noted. What did you call him last week? I called him a douche whistle, but you called him something else. A whiny man, man baby, yeah. man, man baby, baby, or something like that. Whiny man baby. That sounds about right. Yeah, um, and we I, heard backlash I, from the Morrissey army. And how odd that we said that stuff about Morrissey in our the last time we met, and then there was some online. Uh, controversy about Morrissey a couple of days later. Well, he got upset because the Simpsons featured him on their episode, which is we didn't plan it that way, kids, just so you know. Yeah, that just happened. It's just the stars aligning to make fun of Morrissey. <laughs> that was just that ha- that was just uh, magical kismet. Who would be upset because they were on the Simpsons? Why I mean, would I you not be, be I would be flattered. Even if they're making fun of you, dude. You still go. You still, <laughs> you still pay you still they cared they, they cared they cared enough to make fun of like weird al yeah right it, right like weird al i mean I, I would consider that among the highest honors that i could receive absolutely yes absolutely so it was not it was not marcy but whoever their guitar player was left but palmer just happened to know a guy that being neil young wow initially young considered the gig just a paid assignment that he'd do while he continued to pursue his solo music however he did end up joining the band thus completing the extremely odd pairing of Neil Young and Rick James into the same band. Again, if you gave me two names out of a hat, I don't think I'd come up with that. I, I would, would probably not have picked those two. <laughs> uh, and then Bruce Palmer, of course, who would go on to be in uh, Buffalo Springfield. Uh, the Minor Birds featured a sound that was equal parts R&B and rock. Young actually compared their sound to that of the Rolling Stones. Quote, we got more and more into how cool the Stones were, how simple they were, and how cool it was, Young says. James, in fact, referred to himself as, quote, the next Mick Jagger. Young actually shared a flat with James for a time. Mick Mick Jagger, who was 53 at the time. I would say who who at the time had just become eligible for Social Security, I think. (laughs) Um, James, who had been using drugs from a very young age, had not slowed down. Young told Howard Stern in an interview, quote, we did some wild things. It's all very hazy to me now. I'm glad I made it through that stage. It got a little dicey. There were some drugs going on, and I remember singing one song for a day and a half. So just sitting in the flat with Rick James doing drugs and singing the same song for a day and a half. To be fair, it was the 60s, so. Right, right, right. Neil Young biographer Jimmy McDonough described the band's image as, quote, the minor birds, in black leather jackets, yellow turtlenecks, and boots had quite a surreal scene going. A May 1966 article from Billboard magazine indicated that the debut single from the Minor Birds would be I've Got You in My Soul. That wasn't the case, however, probably because it was noticed at a certain point that the song sounded remarkably similar to Little Girl, a song by Van Morrison. Uh, well, by Van Morrison's uh, then band, Them. And I, I listened to the two back to back. It's a, They ripped it off. 
that there's like not really a question about it. They could, yeah, they completely stole it. They did end up recording some songs, however, though none of them would see the light of day for more than 40 years. Oh, wow. wow. We'll get to why in just a second. But let's take our first musical break of the episode. So right now we're going to listen to the Minor Birds featuring Rick James, Neil Young, and Bruce Palmer <laughs> with a song called It's My Time. Here we go. So I, I'm going to take it that that's the first time either of you had heard that song. Yeah. Heard but, that okay, so what did, what, what did you think? I actually, I, you know, uh, because I'm a fan of, you know, the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, uh, pretty much in that order, <laughs> um, I would have to say that it does, it sounds a lot like the birds. Yeah. Not, not like the minor yep. birds, but the birds. Um, a little bit of the kinks. Uh, you can definitely hear, like, their outside influences coming in. I do actually like it, but it's very tambourine heavy. Yeah, yeah, which maybe makes it makes you think of of the birds a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Although you get with some of those beats, it it does border on that Motown sound. The beat does. Yes. Um, but yeah, like you got that '60s jangly kind of thing going on. Yeah, Further. I didn't really hear a. I, I didn't really get a Stones vibe from that though. No. Which, you know, we just quoted Neil Young saying they were really getting into the Rolling Stones and stuff. Now, I, I listened to a few of their other songs, and you could hear the more bluesy rock. Now, I will say, I will say um, what is it? Uh, out of my head. Yeah, under my thumb. Under my thumb. There, that, that does, if you're going to go for a Rolling Stone song, I'd say it sounds a little bit more like under my and, thumb. And under my thumb, it was a little, came a little bit later, I think. 
And I, I, will I think that was seventies seventies era. I, I think. I think you're right. This sounds nothing like the Neil Young I know. But but I'll say nothing. but but then again I've but then again I've I've had brown liquor, so don't don't trust my judgment on things like this. Uh, now going into that song, I mentioned that it would be a really long time in between that was when that was recorded and when it was finally released. It wasn't until its inclusion on a complete Motown box set in 2006 that it was actually made available to the public for the first time. Oh wow. That is owed to the past of James finally catching up with him. Now, because he was on the run from the law in the United States, he went by a fake name. A musician friend of his recommended he use the name Ricky James Matthews, which happened to be the name of the woman's deceased cousin. Hmm. James, in fact, pretended to be that woman's son. Oh, wow. That name got shortened when he met Stevie Wonder at Motown, who told him his name was too long and suggested he go by Ricky James. However, not Young, not Palmer, not Mitchell, no one knew James's full backstory, and none were aware that he was on the run from military authorities in the United States. The, the only person in whom James had confided about being AWOL was Minor Birds manager Morley Shellman. It was alleged that Shellman had pocketed the advance from Motown, and when the band found out, they fired him. James additionally alleged that, quote, I beat his ass. I don't think that's a lie. Yeah, I believe that. Pr probably so. However it actually played out, Shellman told Motown about James being on the run from the law and military, and thus the label shelved the entire project. Oh, wow. They did tell James, though, that once he had come clean and done his time, they would still be interested in him. So he reluctantly returned himself or, or turned himself in to the FBI and was sentenced to five months of hard labor. Only now turning 18, James mounted an whoa, escape. Whoa, 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 whoa. Good he's Lord. He's not 35 yet? <laughs> he's not 21 yet. Oh, my Ooh. God. Yeah. Now, having just turned 18, James mounted an escape from the Brooklyn Naval Brig after serving only six weeks of his sentence. He's breaking <laughs> out of a military prison? Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. He would again be a fugitive from justice, but turned himself in just six months later. His mother, his cousin, Louis Stokes, who would later serve in Congress, and a very good attorney helped plead his possible five-year sentence down to five months. This time, he served his sentence out, and then he was a free man. He returned to Toronto for a bit, then headed back to Detroit. Though he was no longer a wanted man and didn't need an assumed name, he kept the name Ricky James, which he eventually shortened to Rick. By this time, the old version of the Minor Birds had split up. Palmer and Young had decided to go to Los Angeles and drove there in a hearse that Young had purchased. Purchased, mind you. Uh-huh. He just bought a hearse. Yep. Young would eventually uh, pay homage to his time in the Minor Birds with his song, Mr. Soul. James tried to get a new version of the band together, but it quickly fell by the wayside. In 1968, he began writing for Motown, where the Spinners and the Miracles both ended up cutting some of his songs. Can we just point out how porous the northern border is at this point in history? Mm -hmm. I mean, people just walking back and forth, waltzing in and out. Oh, yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, and th this was, you know, I think that this was a very popular locale for uh, deserters, right? Oh, I mean, they, they, from the United States, people who did, who, who did not want to be sent to Vietnam or, 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 or whatever opposed it, they, they would actually 
flee to Canada. And, it, and, and if it's as easy as it was for Rick, it, it you know, it, that gives the impression that, you, like you said, you could almost just literally just walk across and nobody said anything. Yeah, and certainly Rick James is not alone. As you point out, a lot of people, when they were found out they might get drafted, went over the border. Yes. It was for this reason that you could say whatever you want to about Watergate or whatever else. You dared not speak ill of Richard Milhouse Nixon in the presence of my father. Got it. Because his, because his number had been drawn, and he was uh, – essentially, he was in the next wave to go when Nixon began the drawdown of troops and started to end, the con- to end America's involvement in it. So <laughs> you, you did not speak ill of Richard Milhouse Nixon around my dad because he was like a whisker from heading over there. Woof. Yeah. That wasn't an especially lucrative gig, reportedly paying less than $50 a week. But James found a way to secure some extra income. That being by straight up pimping, yo. Here we go. Quote, so many of the big name men at Motown had worked as pimps that it was practically the norm, James said. He claimed that he and Jimmy Ruffin, who had a hit with what becomes of the brokenhearted, took their girlfriends to Toronto to have them, quote, work the clubs. Eventually, James grew his fledgling small business, adding three additional female employees. He's an entrepreneur? To his roster of, yeah, small business. Uh, Yeah, he added three new employees to his roster of talent. However, he eventually found himself ill-suited for management or something like that. Quote, I like the hard-edged discipline and cold-blooded attitude a good pimp requires, he lamented. Quote, if my bitch said she was too tired to work, I said go home. If she said some John had beat her up, I'd find the John and beat his ass. Pimping was too inhuman for me. I let the girls go and went back to my music. What a saint. Everything about that sentence is so ridiculous. Uh, yeah, I, I'm thinking oh, God. hard. I'm still, wow. <laughs> wow. Oh. I mean, I mean, it's a watershed a, moment when you realize you're not cut out to be a pimp, right? I mean, I, well, I mean, let's let's face it, pimping ain't easy. It ain't easy. I mean, if his bitch said she was too tired to work, he told her to take a nap. You can't you can't make get anywhere in the pimping game that way. We hear rock and roll heaven do not condone the use <laughs> of the word referring to women as bitches, nor do we Great quote. people in the sex work. Uh, field, and I'm sorry that my brother is here. <laughs> He's doing direct quotes. This isn't yeah. direct quotes. This is what Rick James said. It's a documentary. Okay. Um, he and Motown session bassist Greg Reeves decided to move to Los Angeles and try to, quote, hitch a lift from Neil Young's rising star. Well, how old is he now? Like 14? <laughs> right. I think he's regressed to 14. He's about 19 or 20, I guess. He's like, you know, like dog years. Jeez. Uh, really? By this time, Young's stature as a singer-songwriter was on the rise. He and James uh, had lived together, been friends, and had been in a band together. So James hoped that that would be an end for him once he got there. So he and Reeves headed to California. Upon arriving, James initially crashed on the couch of Stephen Stills. What? Are you just pulling so, names out of a hat? I'm sorry. Right. Oh, it, it, just keep, oh, hang on, buddy. It gets better. Wait, just wait a second. So he crashed on the couch of Stephen Stills. And this is when he got back into Gumpian territory. <laughs> On one of his first nights in town, James said he, quote, awoke to see a young dude sitting on the floor in the lotus position, stoned as a mother effer, with blood dripping from his wrist. He seemed hypnotized by the flow of his own blood, saying things like, quote, isn't the blood beautiful? Isn't that the deepest red you've ever seen? 
James was afraid that the guy who he didn't know was going to bleed to death. So he woke up stills and told him what was going on, only to hear the response, O-F, he's doing it again. So the two gathered up, quote, bandages and galls and took care of the guy who remained passive throughout the ordeal. When they bandaged the man up, Stills supposedly said to James, Ricky, meet Jim Morrison. What? Uh Uh-huh. Also, Gumpian territory reminds me of a place you keep attacking in the board game Risk, but you can never quite take. Oh, my God. I just had to point that out. I I keep saying it, (laughs) like your life is created by a Mad Lib. It's, this is... Let's, let's just recap. You have Bruce Palmer, Joni Mitchell, yep. Neil yep. Young. You're you sleeping on Stephen Stills' couch, and the guy puts himself in the next room over is Jim Morrison, which is, oh, crap, he's doing it again. <laughs> huh? Thank <sighs> you, Michael Good night, everyone. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, now, oddly, uh, given their, oddly, given their very strange introduction, James said the two actually became friends. Morrison was fascinated by James's history with Motown and actually read him a poem about, quote, the dead angels of history returning as groupies. He liked Morrison's poetry and trippy lyrics, but actually thought Morrison was a terrible singer. (laughs) Uh, Morrison managed to trick James into taking LSD for the first time, telling him that it was a mint. So, so wait, the guy was shooting heroin at age 12? Yep, 13, yeah. And he had to have Jim Morrison slip him LSD. Yeah, and so Morrison dosed him with LSD. So the story gets way better than that. So both of them, tripping balls on acid, went to Disneyland. (laughs) I quit. I can't. My brain isn't constructed the way that, that needs to be constructed to, to put, to, to, to yeah. process any of to process any of the words that I am saying now. Yes, it's it's yeah. not. I have not had enough coffee or, oh God, something. There's just some, so, something. Rick James and Jim Morrison tripping balls on acid went to Disneyland for what would have qualified as one of the weirdest things in the history of weird things in the history of the weird world, in my opinion. However, Disney attendants denied the two entries since they were both. Very clearly high. <laughs> Quote, we were turned away because our hippie threads were too far out for white bread Disney. F Disney. How, we to- <laughs> how trash do you have to be where you can't gain entry where grown people go hug and life-size mice? Have you ever been on Mr. Toad's Wild Ride? That's like an acid trip in and of itself. Oh, my God. So he said, F, F Disney. We went to some dumpy bumper car place and had a ball. The more I hung, the more I was digging L.A., James said. So basically they went to like some crappy like roadside carnival, Jim Morrison and Rick James did, high on acid, and rode the bumper cars. I wonder if it wasn't Knott's Berry Farm, and I'm not being funny when I say that. Because think about it, they would have to drive to Anaheim. Where else would right. they go? Where's that? But no, isn't Knott's Berry in Anaheim too? Knott's Berry is too. Yes, I'm wondering if they just left, went over to Knott's and started running into each other in cars. But, it, but that so so basically they wander into place where a man missing both thumbs with a hairy neck wearing a, a dirty t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, I'm. Oh my goodness, I have so many questions. I, I don't. Yeah, even... I, I, that's that. You know, that like that. That's the guy that says, oh, so two, two, two for the bumper cars." <laughs> what kind of? I want you to imagine 
okay, first of all, let's imagine being on acid and being on bumper cars. But then let's imagine what how Rick James and Jim Morrison high on acid riding bumper cars would have seemed like an acid trip for everybody else that was present. I was going to say the contact high would be remarkable. Including including thumbless, hairy neck, dirty shirt, ride attendant. And then you probably got like some nine-year-old who, unlike Rick James, has not yet had sex, just trying to drive these bumper cars and (laughs) give them all some people. I mean, think about this. And you got a couple of 12-year-olds who've never even messed with smack, the (sighs) squares. Living in a bubble, am I right? Yeah. Um, sadly, Holy of course, Toledo. sadly, of course, Jim Morrison would pass away just a few years later, uh, dying in France in 1971, or so the Germans would have us believe, um, which was the same year, by the way, 1971, that saw the formation of Manfred Mann's Earth Band. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, our federally mandated reference to Manfred Mann's Earth Band has, has been, been satisfied of the podcast. Thank Good you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, musically speaking, James and Reeves uh, were eventually working on being a duo. However, around this time, Stills was in the process of putting together a new band in the wake of Buffalo Springfield, beginning to splinter and eventually break up. This would be a bit of a super group that would feature Stills, David Crosby, formerly of the Birds, and Graham Nash, who had previously played with the Hollies. Who would eventually pull in Young, if I'm not mistaken. They would, of course, eventually add Neil Young to their lineup and Palmer as a bass player. Wow. But at this point, they were considering both James and Reeves to be their bass player. So Rick James was considered to be the bass player for Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Hang on. He he, he did bongos and percussion. Did he have any training on any other instrument? Okay, so by this time, and we've had to kind of jump around, and let's just be honest. Given some of his other life experiences, I've kind of skipped over the him teaching himself to play baseball. Oh, no, and I can understand why. I'm just, I just, again, the question Yes, he, uh, written by this time, he, he had learned to play guitar and bass and per, percussion. He's, I mean, keyboards, I think he's a multi-instrumentalist. I mean, he could play, okay. play a lot of instruments. Impressive. So, but yeah, he, so Rick James was a candidate to be the bass player for Crosby, Stills, and Nash. <laughs> That's bananas. Um, they eventually, however, opted for Reeves to be the bass player, but Stills liked James and didn't want there to be any hard feelings. So he actually approached James and asked if it would be okay if they brought Reeves on to, the, to play with them instead of him. James was disappointed, but he gave his stamp of approval. And, and as a bit of a peace offering, and to assure that there are no hard feelings, Stills handed James a vial of pharmaceutical-grade cocaine, as the two wrapped up their talk. <laughs> Sorry, you're not in the band. Here's, Here's your some smack. <laughs> Here's some really good coke. This is good. I mean, Rick, for real, this is some good shit, dog. This is kind of like when Pat Sajak says, we have some nice party goods for you. I mean. Right. Right. He got the drug equivalent of a lifetime supply of rice or rice. You're not going to be the bass player, but. Uh, the San Francisco treat. Here's some blow. Oh. Thanks for playing. So he didn't get a spot in Crosby, Stills, and Nash. But Los Angeles was still being very kind to him. He met a man named James Sebring, who James described as, quote, a cat who'd made millions selling hair products. <laughs> yep. Specifically, he was the founder of the hairstyling corporation Sebring International. Much as he had found patrons of the arts in Canada that helped him financially, James found one stateside in Sebring. Hey, you understand how hard it is for me to keep my mouth shut right now. I, I know, but, it, but, but that's, this is kind of an important thing that's coming up. 
I'm come. Okay. I'm, I'm quiet. Okay. So yeah. not only was he a benefactor, Sebring was also a friend who took James to many of the big star studded parties he so enjoyed. One evening in August of 1969, James claims that Sebring invited James and his then girlfriend Seville to a party he would be attending at the home of director Roman Polanski, yep. oh, which was being thrown by his girlfriend at the time, actress Sharon Tate. Quote, there was going to be a big party and Jay didn't want us to miss it, James said. So anyone who knows the names I just read and paid attention to the date of this party probably knows what unfolded next, but they probably have no idea how James was associated with it. He claims that he was nursing a horrible hangover, one so bad that he could barely get out of bed. So he and Seville missed that party, at which members of Charles Manson's clan brutally murdered Sebring, Tate, and other guests. Abigail Folger, Stephen Parent, and Wojciech Frakowski. Thank you. This is a particular And then the following night, killing uh, Lino and Rosemary LaBianca. Yep. James yep. claims he was completely unaware of the horror that unfolded until the next day when he went to the grocery store and saw a headline on the LA Times detailing the murders. And I, I will I will say this. I will I will say this right now. Okay. Um a lot of that is hearsay because if you went back and actually like talked to people during that time, everybody was invited to the house that night. Everybody in Hollywood apparently mm -hmm was invited to that so like people were making claims like oh i was supposed to be there oh i was supposed to be there so like honestly i love rick james but we will take that with a grain of salt because i, I, I will but now he apparently he did know sebring and sebring was sort of a patron of the arts for him who, who did uh support him financially did take him to a lot of parties i mean that that part's not made up yeah and, and also bear in mind at this i mean it's easy to look back knowing what we know now about roman polanski but at that time he was huge yeah mm -hmm. i mean he was walking on water in hollywood yeah so james stayed extremely busy at this point though he still didn't have the big breakthrough hit that he was looking for he formed a band are you ready for this i know no, you no. like crap we we all love crappy band names this isn't a crappy one. It's one that, with a slight modification, would become very famous about 15 years later. Okay. Right? Salt and Pepper. Wow. Now, not Peppa. Pepper. Pepper, yeah. He, he formed that with a man named Ed Roth, and the two of them both played on Bruce Palmer's solo album, The Cycle is Complete, a 38-minute full-length album that contained three songs. <laughs> so, sadly, we will not be playing any of those here today. <laughs> Since they averaged 13 minutes in length. Yeah, I know. Rush would be proud. <laughs> yep. James and Rolf recorded as the duo Heaven and Earth in Toronto. They eventually changed their name to Great White Cane and recorded a self-titled album for a small L.A. label called Lion Records. The promo shots for the album show the musicians, including James, decked out in cowboy attire with James wearing mm -hmm. a black hat. Ah. So let's do a little bit of deep cut diving here for a song that very few of you have probably ever heard. Given that a YouTube video for it only has a few hundred views, I certainly had not heard it prior to starting my research for this episode. In fact, I had never even heard of the band. But here's Rick James and White Cane with a song called Find It. Thank you. 
right, and we're back. Okay. All right, so first of all, we were talking as that played. You both really liked that song. I yes. did. I did. Yes. What what kind of vibe did that give you? I'm I'm getting the, uh, who did Why Can't We Be Friends? Sly the Family Stone. Was that Sly and the Family Stone? Sly and the Family Stone, yeah. Yeah, it's giving me that kind of vibe. That like, almost like, almost like a kind of junkyard get together. It sounds like there's like 40 people just rocking out and you feel that like energy and that vibe. And I really like that because, you know, when I'm, when I say junkyard energy, it's like improvised wait, instruments. And wait a minute. Like Hang on a second. I'm sorry. Yeah. Why can't we be friends with uh, Edwin? It's Edwin Starr in war, isn't it? Is it? Somebody look it up. That, it took me a second because, um, you know, booze. Okay. It is. <laughs> booze, 130 work hours in two weeks, et cetera. And so on. War? War. It is war. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's wrong. War. Okay. Yeah, okay. Okay. All right. You you threw one name out, uh, Will, that made a lot of sense. It sounded it sounded like early Chicago. That was my first inkling, and I that, that's I, a good. That was a really that's a really good analogy. I think that's a good comparison. But the one that now rings true to me is I hear Three Dog Night. I yeah. totally hear Three Dog Night. I hear almost yep. the baby of of uh, Chicago and Tina Turner. Oh wow. Okay. And also you get like a, a little, little bit, bit of that funk infusion. I feel well, like we're moving well, in that I'm direction. About yeah. that, that like junkyard sound. Mm -hmm. The What I'm talking about when I say junkyard sound and saying like a group of people getting together with like uh, improvised instruments, <clears throat> like spoons and washboard and stuff like that. Like just things that you can like smash, mm -hmm. you know, just yeah. things that stomp, stomp, sorry, stomp. stomp okay. uh, just, you know, you play on whatever you have and then you make this joyful noise. And I, I really dig that because it sounds like it's a very collaborative thing, not just a solo. Okay, so his interactions with greatness have not stopped yet. <laughs> While he was visiting Toronto, James claims that he became a drug runner for his Coke dealer roommate. At some point, that side hustle included delivering drugs to funk legend George Clinton. Oh, <laughs> George Clinton. And the person that was supplying the drugs was <sighs> director David Lynch. Not, not that I'm not that I'm actually aware of, but at this point, why not? Yeah, just, just say anything. It's probably true. Who is who is currently dating Queen Victoria, <laughs> and they were taking care of their child, Russell Crowe. Inter interesting. You should mention foreign royalty, but we'll, I think we'll get there in part two. <laughs> oh, by the way, guys, I was just joking about all that. Uh, David Lynch, to my knowledge, has never run drugs. So, although after this episode, I'm looking all of this up because we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. Right, exactly. He says that um, Clinton invited him to do a line with him. The two talked, and James says that he showed off some of his musical skills to a man he somewhat idolized. He says that Clinton told him, quote, you shouldn't be running no toot, and encouraged him to sign with a label, offering to help as much as he could, provided that he, quote, kept the good blow coming. <laughs> now, it needs to be noted that Clinton, while not contradicting that story, as far as I saw, didn't always have the highest opinion of Rick James. He not only accused James of appropriating parts of Funkadelic songs into his own, he mockingly called him Slick James in future years. Hmm. For his part, James claims that Clinton snorted a bunch of his toot, but never actually helped him get a record deal. Okay, so he kept grinding. He formed another band, uh, this one called Hot Lips and briefly played in McKenna Mendelssohn Mainline, a Toronto-based blues band. He and Mainline guitarist Mike McKenna co-wrote the song You Make the Magic, which would later be released by the Chambers Brothers. 
Finally, he started to get a taste of the success he had been chasing most of his life, all like 24 years of it at this point. When he signed with A&M Records, his first single would be under the name Rick James. The song called My Mama that still had one foot in rock and wasn't yet into the fully realized funk that he would become famous for. It became a surprise club hit in Europe, and so he went across the pond for a short tour to help promote it. During that club tour, James met a tall, very attractive 19-year-old Swedish model and found her to be, quote, freedom herself. While the two of them were, you know, enjoying one another's company at her house, James said the two ended up having a surprise visitor. Quote, her mother walked in the room and joined us in bed. Oh my. Uh, okay. That's a thing. This was my first real introduction to fully realized freakery. So he had reached fully realized freakery and some super freakery was just around the corner in every sense. Oh. So uh, that's all we've got for tonight. I don't really have a discussion point for us on this one, other than I would like for you to to reflect on your favorite parts of this episode. Yeah, what did you find the most I, insane? Yeah, I, I'm going to let what, you what, what, what is the most insane story that we had? I, I think it was the part where Rick James was in the delivery room bringing the future members of Glass Tiger into the world. I think that was the moment <laughs> that stuck with me. I like it when you train the elephants. <laughs> you know, at, at one point, uh, he... And the bass tech for Manfred Mann's Earth Band smoked some powdered ferret scat out of a wormwood didgeridoo. And the fact is, we'd have to fact check it because in this episode, it would make sense. Point, there, you can't, if everything I just told you is true, you can't tell me that I just made that up. Exactly. This is within, the, you, with, you cannot with any degree of certainty call me a liar. <sighs> I was going to say, Jim Morrison and Rick James being too high to gain admittance to Disneyland. So they go probably, out that's probably my favorite yeah. that we've done so far. So they go, yeah. So they go ride bumper cars. <laughs> and so they went to some, they, uh, to, to, oh. per James's retelling, some dumpy roadside carnival, it sounded like basically, and rode bumper cars. Yeah. The two of them, like you said, just tripping balls in a bumper car arena is, that's an image I, right there. I know it sounds weird, but I'm going to pick something very, I'm going to pick something weird. Mm -hmm. The idea that he actually worked it out in his head that to stay out of combat in Vietnam, he would sign up for the military. Well, while being now that was actually that was actually a pretty common thing is that you you tried to get either in the reserves or in the National Guard or something. But if he was under the age, he wouldn't have been conscripted anyway. So that that's the part that's the part that doesn't make any sense. If you were fourteen or fifteen. You were safe for three more years, exactly. at least. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, it, it, so getting in the National Guard or something was a, a way that some people went about avoiding having to go to Vietnam. But yeah. it's like, dude, you're 14 or like you just got a driver's permit. Like you don't, you're not going to get drafted. Why are you doing? I don't. You're, yeah. you're right. I don't understand that part. Yeah. So that's that's the one where I'm just like, I don't know the thought process there, but I'm gonna say I think you might be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and Will, Will and I just Will and I just noted as while you were gone, how crazy an episode has it been? When the last thing I say is he had a three way with a hot Swedish model and her mother, and you're like, okay, yeah, <laughs> that seems like a little that seems like a little bit of a letdown. As you do, I'm right. gonna say that Rick James's life 
sort of sounds like what we went through with 2020. It's just like at some point, <laughs> like in the first, you know, two, three months, we're like, oh yeah, that's crazy. That's so weird. By the end of it, we're just, you know, and, and when you get into the middle, it's like, okay, what's next? And by the end of it, you're like, oh, murder hornets. Sure, why not? Yeah, I, I remember just glancing at the news and thinking, up, oh, asteroids first hit Earth on election day. Pass the coffee, please. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there's aliens now. Yeah, yeah. The, the government is like, there the are aliens. Says, yeah. The government came out and said there are aliens, and we were all like, but wait. <laughs> What are the bare naked ladies doing? Yeah, we're like, that's great. Can you hang it on the fridge? Yeah. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, okay. I, I will equate Rick James's life to how we accepted news in 2020. Pretty much, yeah. At the beginning, we were shocked and shaken. And by the end of it, anything could have happened and we would have just accepted it. Yeah. As if, if, if at the end of 2020, someone said, Hey, there's a, a giant fiery penis that is uh, heading toward Earth. That's going to have sex with the polar caps. We'd have gone like, yeah, okay, well, yeah, sure. Hey, yeah. Like, hey, hey, let's get. Hey, hope, hope they're going to web stream that so I can watch it. That'll be cool. <laughs> like it, like there's nothing you could have thrown at us in December of 2020. Think about how numb we were to everything. That there's a massive explosion. In downtown Nashville on Christmas Day, and everybody's just like, "Yeah, well, they were like, well, <laughs> like, li that, like, that literally, literally when that story, that story disappeared in a few hours. Like, nobody cared. <laughs> by the end, of it, we were just like, oh, okay, huh, here we go. Yeah. So uh, that that is uh, uh, where we're going to wrap up. Uh, let LD uh, kick out our socials, and then we'll play one uh, song to close it out. Yeah, I don't know if I feel like kicking out my socials. Hell, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we kind of have to. Right. So I'm going to do it but only because we have to, not because I want to. Um, so if you think that we're doing a great job, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> why, why wouldn't you after this masterpiece? <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you didn't question anything we just presented. <laughs> you can give us money and tell us we're great. You can do that at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. You can find us on Twitter at rock and roll LT. Our Instagram is rock and roll heaven LT. Facebook, Rock and Roll Heaven Pod, still not saying our website. And you can email us at rockandrollheavenlt at gmail.com. And please make sure to check out all the other Pantheon podcasts at pantheonpodcast.com, which includes the aforementioned podcast that TJ2 the Deuce mentioned earlier, which was called Miss Pamela's Pajama Party. Pod I listened to a couple episodes of hers that uh, they're really, really good. If, uh, you know that she's got there are a lot of uh, a wide array of people from the from the musical world she talks to and it's she has a really unique perspective on it and stuff so yeah i i really enjoyed some of those that i listened to what's crazy is it's almost like our network knows how to uh you know rope in podcasts that are good and about music but somehow we still flip through which is weird yeah <laughs> there are people who actually like no no stuff about anything and then there's us <laughs> <laughs> talk, 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 talking about rick james rick james losing his virginity when he was nine we are we are three chuckleheads with wikipedia yep what you do toot, toot. all right not that uh, and, and 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 we love we as you just said you, you heard all the social stuff we love hearing from you we actually got a, a comment from somebody on facebook this week who until they listened to our series on david bowie had never listened to bowie that's awesome like i'm so happy that that's 
that's kind of why I started this podcast was to open up these stories to people so that they go out and they they discover these artists because and, and you would think in most cases like uh, you've never heard of David Bowie well you know not everybody's listened to everything yeah. it might seem like it might we might be aghast like so there's a person who's never listened to Bowie and it's like there's a lot of people who haven't listened to a lot of stuff that you probably think they have. I mean, the thing is, uh, taking that note, uh, yeah. before I did the episode on Chris Cornell, I had only heard one song mm -hmm. by Soundgarden. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And so... What? You know, that, but that's that was... See, but... You, How did you grow up in the house with me and you only heard one Soundgarden? That's a surprise. <laughs> yeah. Uh, cause, uh, you hated me growing up and, also, uh, oh, that was, oh yeah, yeah, I forgot about that. I also played you his <laughs> solo stuff, which you really enjoyed. Yeah. yeah. And that's the thing yeah. I, you know, it's, it's a rare treat when you get to kind of do what you want your audience to do, which is to go seek out these new artists that you never would have learned anything about. Like and, I went back and revisited Bowie's catalog. We've been talking about that. Yeah. I found so, a lot of stuff I enjoyed. And, and that's the thing is like, I, I, you know, like I Uncle Arthur. Rock, I, I love uh, so things that are close to as good as Uncle Arthur, but that's a high bar. Let's be honest. I mean, how much bread have you ever listened to? Baby, I'm a want you. <laughs> Baby, I'm a need you. Yeah. That one? That's, yeah. <laughs> that, that's yeah. exactly the one. Bread or America or Super Tramp or, you know. Oh, I love, oh, no, uh, no, no, no. Super Tramp is awesome. I love Super oh, Tramp. I love me some Super Tramp. Will makes fun of me for loving Super Tramp as much as <laughs> I can. Give a little bit of your time to me. So I don't think it was that he never had listened to Bowie. He just never tried to listen to Bowie. Not that I don't think he never. Yeah, but 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 that but see that's that's very cool that we can connect with people that way and may, and maybe turn them on to somebody that they weren't familiar with or who they certainly are, are aware of them but aren't haven't listened to the whole catalog or what or whatever. So we love we we love the feedback. We'd love to hear from you about you know Rick James riding the white horse when he was thirteen or whatever. Um, whatever, whatever, whatever reflections you might have on the train wreck I just presented. <laughs> and we're not letting up either. Oh, Are we done? We're done. We're, we're done. <laughs> All right. uh, so uh, I'm so sorry you guys tuned in this week. Uh, we appreciate you sticking with us. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, good grief. We really appreciate you guys just being here and sharing with us so guys thank you so much for checking this episode out uh i promise next week will be better um <laughs> i promise nothing i don't actually know but uh thank you for being here for this episode hopefully you'll check us out next episode where i'm pretty sure it's not going to get any better um oh no from lv have a great week do something awesome and uh we'll see you next time Good night. Thanks for coming along. And thank you, Glass Tiger, for just existing. Oh, wow. Okay. So we're going to check out tonight with uh, oh. the song that became a club hit in Europe and perhaps served as a prelude to bigger hits to come down the road. We're going to sign off from Rock and Roll Heaven tonight with Rick James and my mama. I'm a
I wish I had more hands. I Both arms down. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.